Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage. Isabella Bird was a 19th century British pioneering travel writer. Despite ill health throughout her life, she would travel by herself and hire a team when she got to a location. She journeyed to the Rockies in America, Western Tibet, Malaysia, Hong Kong and mainland China, among other destinations. She developed her own photos and thankfully wrote about her experiences in a number of books. Publisher Graham Earnshaw of Earnshaw Books is a huge fan of Isabella Bird, and this week he tells me about this intrepid woman and her books, which he's republished and written a foreword for, including The Golden Chazanese and the Way Thither, and The Yangtze Valley and Beyond. Well, I've been reading books about China and about travelling in China for, of course, decades, and uh, from very early on, I found the books of Isabella Bird to be the most readable and the most colourful in terms of giving a, a sense of place that you don't find necessarily in, in travel writers from the 19th century, usually. That one of the most interesting things about Isabella, I think, is that she invented modern travel writing. And so the style that you read in her travel books, written in the 1880s, the 1890s mostly, they don't feel 19th century. They feel like today in terms of the, the kind of uh, things that she's describing, the kind of attitudes that she takes towards what she does and what she sees. Travel books are a great way of getting to understand a place and there are, of course, other travel writers who've, who've done a, a great job, too. Paul Thoreau is a name that is always uh, bandied around. And I think Isabella is absolutely in the same ballpark as Paul Thoreau in terms of her importance. If you want to understand what it was like to be in Hawaii or in the Rocky Mountains or in Tibet, Western Tibet, in the 1870s or the 1880s, there is absolutely no better way to do it than to read an Isabella Bird book. That will give you the sense of it, the real tactile feel for what it was like there and how you as the reader, how you would react if you were, you were there as well. This is the best role that a travel writer can take, that is to be the representative of the reader and to lead the reader through and to make you, the reader, feel that you're seeing what is happening around through the eyes of the writer and Isabella is a past master of that. The fact that you've got a woman from Britain travelling in the 19th century by herself, she's employing local people to help her, but she, she's largely a one-man band. And, and in fact, in, when she's travelling in China, you do hear where she's pelted with stones sometimes, so security is an issue at times. But how extraordinary was that for her era? My sense is that she was in all ways an extraordinary individual, and certainly to be an only woman uh, travelling alone through the wildest places of the world in the later part of the 19th century, this was a very, very unusual thing. Of course, she was protected by the fact that she was British. If you're wandering around the back blocks of Morocco or of Korea in the late 19th century, you have as part of your protection the fact that you are white. That was definitely something that would be uh, a significant protection. But nevertheless, she was going places that had been uh, never really investigated or explored before from the perspective of uh, European civilization and European adventurers. She was seeking out specifically things that were on the verge of being really, really dangerous. And then that brings us through to who is she and why was she doing all this? She was born in England in 1831, and my sense is that she led a, a very sheltered, isolated life as a child. And she had what would appear to be a, a romance of some sort in the Rocky Mountains. She went to the United States 
when she was in her 20s, I, I think, and was uh, w spent some time living in the Rockies and wrote a book about it. Her first uh, book was about her experiences living in the Rocky Mountains. It's not specified, but I think that she had some kind of a romantic experience while she was there. And then later she married a man named Mr. Bishop, who inconveniently died uh, on her within several years, three or four years of their marriage. And so she was alone for most of her life. And during her, her travels, there is also very much a sense of her being extremely isolated. She was not traveling usually with anybody else of her kind, in quotation marks. She had local bearers and barefoot coolies carrying the, uh, the packages and the, the luggage. But she was very much an isolated figure. She would have been thinking her own thoughts as they went through the wilderness. She was keeping her, her diary at night. She was interfacing with what was going on around her through interpreters or, of course, through her own eyes. She was a lively intellect, and she would have been asking lots and lots of questions of the people around her. But it was not a, a community kind of experience. It was a solitary experience, and this is who she was. However, I've had my own adventures as well, and I've, I walked across China between 2004 to, to now-ish, and the experience of walking for long, long distances through a place which was fundamentally extraordinary or alien made me decide that the only way to do that kind of a trip, that kind of an adventure, is alone. If you, if you go with anybody else, then you talk to that person and you create for yourselves a bubble and you therefore pay very little attention to what's going on around you. Isabella, probably because she was an, a solitary and isolated figure, but, but also, I think, f in order to gain the maximum benefit of what she was seeing on her travels, always traveled alone. And so she was wandering around these places, and she was writing a, a narrative of what she saw and what she did, and her books became bestsellers because of the readability of what she wrote and because of the extraordinariness of this single Englishwoman wandering around in places that should have been left only to the most intrepid and barrel-chested colonels. <laughs> her books took her to Hawaii, to uh, Korea, uh, Japan. Her account of a very long trip through Japan uh, from uh, Tokyo, Yokohama, west to Niigata, and then north up to Hokkaido is, I think, one of the best. The books that most appeal to me, however, are the books where she refers in one way or another to Greater China, because I am completely addicted to China. And she came to this part of the world on several occasions and did several accounts that relate in one way or another to China. Of the voyage to Hong Kong, little need be said. The Volga is a miserable steamer with no place to sit in and nothing to sit on but the benches by the dinner table in the dismal saloon. The master, a worthy man so far as I ever saw of him, was goth, vandal, hun, visigoth, all in one. The ship was damp, dark, dirty, old and cold. She was not warmed by steam and the fire could not be lighted because of a smoky chimney. There were no lamps, and the sparse candles were obviously grudged. The stewards were dirty and desponding, the serving inhospitable, the cooking dirty and greasy, the food scanty, the table linen frowsy. She published a book in the early 80s, 1880s, called The Golden Chersonese, 
which is an account of her first arriving in Hong Kong in uh, very late 1878. And on the very first day she was here, there was a fire in Central, where we're sitting right now, which destroyed most of the British part of the colony. And she gives a fantastic account of that particular experience, as a reporter uh, would have done. So this is Isabella's description of arriving in Hong Kong in 1878, December, Christmas Eve. Turning through another channel, we abruptly entered the inner harbour and sailed into the summer blue sky, blue water, a summer sun and a cool breeze, while a tender veil of blue haze softened the outlines of the flushed mountains. Victoria, which is the capital of the British colony of the island of Hong Kong, and which colloquially is called Hong Kong, looked magnificent, suggesting Gibraltar, but far, far finer. Its peak 1,800 feet in height, a giant among lesser peaks rising abruptly from the sea above the great granite city which clusters upon its lower declivities, looking out from dense greenery and tropical gardens and the deep shade of palms and bananas, the lines of many of its streets traced in foliage, all contrasting with the scorched red soil and barren crags which were its universal aspect before we acquired it in 1843. A forest of masts above the town betoken its commercial importance, and P&O and Messageries Maritimes, steamers, ships of war of all nations, low-hulled, big-masted clippers, store and hospital ships, and a great fishing fleet lay at anchor in the harbour. The English and Romish cathedrals, the Episcopal Palace with St. Paul's College, great high blocks of commercial buildings, huge sugar factories, great barracks in terraces, battery above battery, government house and massive stone wharves came rapidly into view and over all its rich folds spreading out fully on the breeze floated the english flag but dense volumes of smoke rolling and eddying and covering with their black folds the lower slopes and the town itself made a surprising spectacle and even as we anchored came off the rapid tolling of bells the roll of drums and the murmur of a city at unrest no one met me. I got into a bamboo chair with two long poles which rested on the shoulders of two lean coolies who carried me to my destination at a swinging pace through streets as steep as those of Varenna, streets choked up with household goods and the costly contents of shops, treasured books and knick-knacks lying on the dusty pavements with beds, pictures, clothing, mirrors, goods of all sorts. Through the encumbered streets and up grand flights of stairs, my bearers brought me to this picturesque grounds, which were covered over with furniture and goods and all descriptions brought hither for safety, and Chinese families camping out among them. Indeed, the bishop and Mrs. Burden had not only thrown open their beautiful grounds to these poor people, but had accommodated some Chinese families in rooms in the palace under their own. The apathy or calm of the Chinese women as they sat houseless amidst their possessions was very striking. In the broad, covered corridor which runs round the palace, everything the burdens most value was lying ready for instantaneous removal, and I was warned not to unpack or take off my travelling dress. The bishop and I at once went down to the fire, which was got under, and saw the wreck of the city and the houseless people camping out among the things they had saved. So what a time to arrive, but yet she's not fazed by it. Not at all, and what's the first thing that she would do at that moment is... Uh, go off with the bishop down into the into the into the very heart of it she wanted to see the flames she wanted to see the walls collapsing she wanted to be in the middle of the eastern babble 
that was where she felt the most comfortable in her whole life. Every time she went home, she was just desperate to get out again, to come back to, uh, to the east. And then she goes off to Canton, Guangzhou, which then was definitely called Canton by, by Isabella. While she was there, she gives a very insightful description of Guangzhou in the late 1870s. And she visited a magistrate's court and a prison and gives, again, the same very insightful description of what she saw and what happened in this court, and thereby provides a, an essential and very valuable view into the way in which the legal process in China worked. This martel, the place of execution on which more than 100 heads at times fall in a morning, is simply a pottery yard, and at the hours when space is required for the executioner's purposes, more or fewer pots are cleared out of the way according to the number of the condemned. The spectacle is open to the street and to all passers-by. Against the south wall are five crosses, which are used for the crucifixion of malefactors. At the base of the east wall are four large earthenware vessels full of quicklime, into which heads which are afterward to be exposed on poles are cast until the flesh has been destroyed. From this bald sketch, it may be surmised that few accessories of solemnity or even propriety consecrate the last tragedy of justice. In some cases, criminals are brought directly from the judgment seat to the execution ground on receiving sentence. But as a rule, the condemned persons remain in prison ignorant of the date of their doom, till an official, carrying a square board with the names of those who are to die that day pasted upon it, enters and reads the names of the doomed. She is, uh, I mean, obviously very intelligent, and uh, considering that partly due to ill health in childhood, she's, right. she's educated at home, so she has a, an eclectic education, but she's observant, she's curious, and that's uh, exemplified in her writing. Now, you describe how accessible her writing, or how readable her yes. writing is. Is this just because she's a good writer, or is, is she really giving a window in on who she is, or just because she's empathetic to the people that surround her? I think empathetic, and she understood how to write in a way which resonated with, with readers, a way that, uh, that transcended the formality and pompousness of so much writing in the 19th century, and thereby presaged travel writing in the 20th century. She is very direct in terms of the way she sees things, and she sees the British Anglo-Saxon civilization approach to organizing society and life as being clearly superior to many other uh, ways of, of operating. And so when she sees things that she believes are primitive or unacceptable from her Anglo-Saxon perspective, then she, then she says it. If she finds people ugly, unattractive, then she will tell you. She's got no sense of a need to be politically correct in, in the way that she's writing, which is also very refreshing. When I was remarking on the fact that in her childhood she's unwell, I mm. mean her parents take her to Scotland several times in order to try and help her with clear air, yeah. and in fact when she first goes to America it's because they That's feel right. that ship travel will help. So I find that amazing, you know, that she yes. has these spine issues and various other ailments, and she's still prepared to go off and travel. She rides a horse um, right. like a man, so she's a strongly independent woman, and I think, you know, I've, I've got great admiration for That's her. Right. So when we're entering China, I mean, you've mentioned the Golden Chazenay, that's partly China, and then also Malaysia. Right. Um, to the point about uh, her, her early illnesses, I, I think that this is one of the drivers throughout life. So, and I can speak to this myself, I have a problem with my leg. 
And one of the things that came out of that was the fact that I walked across China. And I think that while I in no way would want to compare myself directly to uh, to Isabella, I think that there's a uh, there's a common thread there, and with others as well. Many people who are successful in life in all sorts of things do it because they are overcompensating for some weakness that they have. Most rock uh, guitarists are incredibly short. So Isabella was 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 looking for a way conscious. <laughs> subconsciously was looking, for, I think, for a way to, uh, to offset her, her physical weaknesses. And, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't matter uh, what your health is, you can still get onto a boat and you can still walk along a road. And so she did it. She was a, a rider. She spent vast stretches of her travels uh, on horseback. Um, but I think in terms of most of it, she was either on a boat or she was in a palanquin, that it was a, a box with two poles attached to the base of the box. And she sat in the box with a, with a chair inside of it, and there, there would have been two or four coolies who were uh, her carrying along the path. After her visit to Hong Kong and Canton, she then went on to Malaya, the Malay Peninsula, and went upriver into the wilds of the jungles of Malaya where there were headhunters and snakes and all sorts of horrible things. And she gives the first impressions, the first descriptions of that part of the world. It was just this huge blank. Nobody had been in there. Nobody knew what was in there. And it was groundbreaking exploratory work. But from our perspective, the most useful thing still is the descriptions uh, that she gives of that part of the world. And just as her description of a magistrate's court and prison in Canton has a value for us in terms of getting a sense of what was it really like, her descriptions of the interior of the Malay Peninsula today have that same value and I'm sure have or, or should have a huge value for, uh, for Malaysians and people who, who actually live there. I'm interested in China and so her descriptions of anything that relates to China are of, of huge significance and she uh, she made a, a, a number of other trips into China or uh, places in and around China that were uh, that were important. In the 1890s she spent a large portion of her time in East Asia, uh, was in Japan and Korea, she was in Shanghai and in Beijing and then she took a, a trip up the Yangtze River and got off the boat in Wanzhou, Wanxian and walked west from there, or went west from there, probably sitting in a palanquin, to the city of Chengdu, the capital of Sichuan province. This was all before the Boxer Rebellion. She was in Sichuan around 1897, 1898, and the anti-foreigner feelings were growing but had not yet come through to the full explosion that was the Boxer Rebellion of 1900. But she was involved in two or three confrontations, in one of which uh, she was almost killed. And she gives a, a description of it, and the way that she describes it, you can tell that she was intensely irritated <laughs> by the experience. And that was, of course, this was the, you know, the, the Victorian approach, stiff upper lip, right? But I do think that she was uh, very courageous. Having no relatives, no children, no spouse, I think probably made it easier to be absolutely fearless as you're wandering across the, the mountains and glaciers of western Tibet or facing off a, uh, a crowd of rioters screaming for your blood in the city of Chengdu. But she did. She didn't cower and she faced them down. Good for her.
I'm talking with Graham Earnshaw of Earnshaw Books about the life of Isabella Bird, writer, adventurer, and uh, the probably the founder. Would you say of uh, what would you what would the word be that you would use for travel books? The patron saint <laughs> and the patron saint of of travel books. Under Earnshaw Books, you can find uh, Isabella Bird's uh, The Golden Chazanez. Uh, among the Tibetans and the Yangtze Valley and beyond. Now, going back to the Golden Chazanez, so what is a Chazanez? The word Chazanez comes from ancient Greek and it means peninsula. And so the Golden Chazanez for Isabella was a rather overly literary way of suggesting the Malay, the Malay Peninsula. If we go now on to the Yangtze Valley and beyond. She was on a steamer through to Ichang, which is just to the east of the Three Gorges. The Three Gorges today has been made into a lake because they constructed the Three Gorges Dam, uh, which may, may be the, the largest hydroelectric dam in the world. And once you've gone up over the dam, then you're into absolutely calm waters today. But in that era and up to the 1990s, traversing the Three Gorges was a really dangerous process. And it was done mostly in wooden houseboats. And uh, they were pulled by dozens, hundreds of men up through the gorges over the most vicious of the rapids. And during the rapids, she and others would have been walking along the side of the river uh, while the boat was being pulled up. It was an extremely dangerous process and uh, the, the trackers, as they were called, were uh, on occasion were unable to hold steady and were pulled down into the river and were dashed to death on the rocks. And that was, that was life and was the, the way that life was led for those people and on, those, on, those, on that river for hundreds and hundreds of years. So uh, Isabella, of course, gave, gives us a fantastic description. In this extract from the Yangtze Valley and beyond, journalist Peter Simpson reads Isabella Bird's account of the unrelenting hard slog for the boat trackers and how perilous the Yangtze could be. The crews, which in big chunks number 120 men, are engaged at Yichang. For the upward voyage, lasting from 30 to 50 days, they get about four shillings in their food, which is three meals a day of rice, with cabbage fried in a liberal supply of grease, and a little fish or pork on rare occasions. And for coming down, which rarely takes more than 10 days, I did it in a wupan in a little over four, about 18 pence in food. And indeed, many crews work their passage down for food only. For this pittance, these men do the hardest and riskiest work I have seen done in any country. Inhumanely hard, as Consul Bourne calls it, week after week, from early dawn to sunset. The opening of Chungking as a treaty port and various other causes have tended, however, to raise their wages. The larger number of these trackers are usually on shore hauling being directed from the junk either by flag signals or drumbeat under the Taikung's direction. A proportion remain on board to work the huge bow sweep, at which I have seen as many as 15 straining. A few attend the trackers to extricate the tow rope from the rocks, in which it is constantly catching and two or more Taiwan tea or water trackers especially expert swimmers, and without clothing, run ahead of the tow rope, ready to plunge into the water and free it when it catches among rocks which cannot be reached from the shore. If tracking and sailing are both impossible, the trackers propel the junk by great oars. 
each worked by two men, 20 at a side, who face forwards and mark time by combined stamp and a wild chant. In descending, in order to keep steerage way on the junk in a current running from 6 to 12 knots an hour, every agency of progression is brought into play. The slinging of the mast alongside gives a lumbering, ungainly look. The deck is literally crowded with men, naked in summer and in winter clothed in long blue cotton coats. Some are rowing face forwards. Fifteen or more are straining for life at the bow sweep. Others are working the huge oars called the cho or the wheel, each of which demands the energies of ten men. Others are toiling at ulos, big broad bladed skulls, worked over the stern or parallel to the junk side. Even women and children take part in the effort. The Lao Pan grows frantic. He yells, leaps, dances. Drums and gongs are madly beaten. And yet, with all this frantic effort, it is all the junk can do to keep steerage way enough to clear the dangerous places. And not always that. As I saw on two occasions, junks fly down rapids, strike rocks and disappear as unconnected masses of timbers, as if exploded by dynamite. In the early summer of 1889, Isabella Bird is in her late 50s as she starts out from the Vale of Kashmir in the northwest of Britain's Indian Empire on her journey into western Tibet. In this extract from Among the Tibetans, Isabella Bird gives her impressions of Tibetan yaks. After a bitterly cold night, I was awakened at dawn by novel sounds, gruntings and low resonant bellowing round my tent, and the grey light revealed several yaks, the pride of the Tibetan highlands. This magnificent animal, though not exceeding an English shorthorn cow in height, looks gigantic, with its thick curved horns, his wild eyes glaring from under a mass of curls, his long thick hair hanging to his fetlocks and his huge bushy tail. He is usually black or tawny, but the tail is often white and is the length of his long hair. The nose is fine and has a look of breeding as well as power. So on her last trip through uh, China, she had all of the ph photographic equipment and there is a, a wonderful description in the Yangtze River book about how she did it. Above all, she says, there were photographic negatives to develop and print and print to tone and the difficulties enhanced the zest of these processes and made me think with a feeling of complacent superiority of the amateurs who need dark rooms, sinks, <laughs> water laid on, tables and other luxuries. Night supplied me with a darkroom. The majestic Yangtze was laid on. A box served for a table. All else can be dispensed with. I lined my stall with muslin curtains and newspapers and finding that the light of the opium lamps still came in through the chinks, I tacked up my blankets and slept in my clothes and fur coat. With water, water everywhere, Water was the great difficulty. The Yangtze holds any amount of fine mud in suspension, which for drinking purposes is usually precipitated with alum, and unless filtered, deposits a fine, even veil on the negative. I had only a pocket filter, which produced about three quarts of water a day, of which Bedian, her servant, invariably 
abstracted some for making tea, leaving me with only enough for a final wash, not always quite effectual, as the critic will see from some of the illustrations. I found that the most successful method of washing out hypo was to lean out over the gunwale and hold a negative in the wash of the great river, rapid even at the mooring place, and give it some final washes in the filtered water. Printing was a great difficulty, and I only overcame it by hanging the printing frames over the side of the boat. When all these rough arrangements were successful, each print was a joy and a triumph, nor was there any disgrace in failure. That's one way to process photographs. Right, and just that image yes. of this, this English lady, already in her, in her 60s, developing photographs off the side of a Chinese <laughs> boat in the darkness of the Yangtze River in 1897. Think about it, it's fantastic. My thanks to Graham Earnshaw of Earnshaw Books, talking there on the life of travel writer and explorer Isabella Bird. Earnshaw Books have republished a number of Bird's books with forwards by Graham. My thanks also to Tom McAlinden and Peter Simpson for lending their voices. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage.